If you want to turn your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 6, that's where we're going to be this morning as we embark on a a five-week series looking at the topic of worship. So during my COVID-19 hiatus, I got to read a lot, more than I normally read, and there was one book that I started reading during my hiatus called For the Glory of God, Retrieving Biblical Worship. And so as I began to read that book and as I began to think about the way that oftentimes the church, especially in North America, views the concept of worship, I thought what a great way for us to begin the new year diving into not what I think about worship, not what you think about worship, but what the Word of God teaches about the subject of worship. And there was another book that was written that I want to mention as we begin today by a lady named Edith Humphreys, and she identified in that book called Grand Entrance five ailments or five problems that she has observed with worship in the North American church. So I want to read these five things out to you. Number one, trivializing worship with a preoccupation on the atmosphere and the mood of the room. In other words, people will come to a service and they'll leave and whether or not that worship service was considered successful is how the room felt, the mood of the service. Number two, misdirecting worship by making it man-centered rather than God-centered. So people leaving thinking more of the preacher or the music leader than God himself. Number three, deadening the worship experience by neglecting the word of God. Not just the proclamation and the preaching of the word of God, but the word of God in the songs that we sing and in the prayers that we pray. Number four, perverting worship with emotional, self-indulgent experiences at the expense of true liturgy. And then number five, exploiting worship with market-driven values. The idea behind that would be, let's just do whatever we have to do to get as many people in the room as possible. And I think Humphreys in her book is pretty much spot on on her assessment of where we are in terms of worship in the North American church. If you were to go to many church websites today and just examine the church staff, and you were to look at all of the people that are on staff, you will find, more times than not, that the person who leads the music is often called the worship pastor. And unintentionally, what we have done is we have restricted worship to what we do on Sunday morning when we sing songs, and nothing else that we do is worship. And that's an unintentional consequence. It's not something that churches have desired to do. It's just an unintended consequence of not really thinking about our words. And when we use the term worship pastor, it's as if that person is the only one who can lead us into the worship of God. Now, we know that that's not true. But churches over the centuries have often divided over this concept of worship. And it's only because they view worship as the 60-minute service on a Sunday morning. But we know that worship is all of life. 
Everything that we do is worship to God. And so over the next five weeks, what I hope to do, again, is not give you my opinion on worship, but to take us back to the biblical text to see what God's word teaches about worship. And so we're gonna be on a five-week journey. Today, we're gonna look at who it is that we worship. Next week, we'll look at why we worship. The third week, we're gonna look at corporate worship, which is just a fancy word for saying the worship that you and me do together in this room on Sunday morning. And then the fourth week, we'll look at personal worship. What does it look like for me to worship personally just me and God? And then on the last week, we'll look at family worship. How can I lead my children and my grandchildren to be worshipers of God? So that's what we're gonna be doing over the next five weeks. And the goal of this whole series is that by the end of these five weeks, we will have a better understanding of what biblical worship actually is, what the Bible teaches about what it means to worship God. So we're gonna be in both the Old and the New Testament over these next five weeks, but today we are gonna be in Exodus chapter six, and I know many of you are disappointed because you thought you were done with the Old Testament, but we are not ever gonna be done with the Old Testament completely, so you're just gonna have to get that out of your head. But beginning in February, once we're through this series, we're gonna embark from February all the way through December, working our way through the entire New Testament. So those of you that are weary of the Old Testament in February, we'll work our way through all of the New Testament. Exodus chapter six, beginning in verse one. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they live as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now we need to do a little bit of background because we don't just start in Exodus chapter 6. But we know all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 that God established his covenant with Abraham. And the first thing we learn about the God that we worship is that he is a God who keeps his promises. Verse four, God references this covenant. What God did was he chose Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 and he said, Abraham, through you, through your family, through all of your descendants, 
I am going to bless you. I'm going to make a family of nations through your family, and I'm going to give you a place, and I'm going to give you a home, and you are going to be my chosen people. In that covenant, God makes Abraham and his family the people of God. This promise never goes away. It is in place throughout the entire storyline of the Old Testament and the entire storyline of the New Testament. Vaughn Roberts in his book, God's Big Picture, which I taught through last summer, says this, the promises of the kingdom will all be completely fulfilled at the end of time. God's people will consist of all of those from every nation who trust in Christ. They will be unified together in God's place, the new creation, a new Jerusalem, which is the new temple. And they will all submit to God's rule and therefore know his perfect blessing. The God that we serve is a God who keeps his promises. So if you were to go back, and this is difficult to do because there's a lot of different opinions on how we date the patriarchs in Genesis and how we date the Exodus. But generally speaking, a conservative estimate is that the period of Abraham was around 2000 BC, give or take. And the Exodus event takes place around 1300 or 1250 BC. So we're talking about 700 years from when God first made this promise to Abraham and he continues to mention it here in this passage in Exodus chapter 6. That's 700 plus years of keeping a promise. How many of you in this room have ever kept a promise 700 years? How many of you have kept a promise 7 years? How many of you have kept a promise 7 days? This is the God that we serve. A God who is faithful to keep all of his promises, not just for 700 years, but through all of eternity. When we studied the Old Testament last year, we saw time and time again that every prophecy that was mentioned in the prophetic books is fulfilled in the New Testament, in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. This is the God that we serve. He is faithful to keep his promises, not just part of the time, not just some of the time, all of the time. And that is why he is worthy of our worship. Now, Genesis 3.15 is known as the Proto-Evangelium. It's a fancy word for saying the first mention of the gospel. And here's what's happening in Genesis 3.15. In the context of that passage, Adam and Eve have just eaten of the fruit of which God told them not to. They ate from the tree that God said, do not eat from. And so as a result, God is bringing judgment on Adam and Eve, and he's bringing judgment on the serpent. And here's what he says in verse 15. He's talking to the serpent, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What is that verse talking about the reason it is called the first gospel is because this verse in genesis three fifteen is talking about jesus himself jesus is the one who comes and crushes the head of the serpent and he accomplishes that 
through his death on the cross and then his resurrection where he defeats death and he defeats sin once and for all. But in the process of crushing the head of the serpent, this text tells us that his heel will be bruised. This is a reference to the pain and the agony and the torture that Jesus experienced on the cross for you and for me. The text in Genesis happens a long time before Jesus comes on the scene. But right here, we are seeing a prophecy that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ many, many, many years later. In a devotional I was reading on this passage not long ago, here's what it says. 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ won the decisive victory over Satan through his death and resurrection. The devil is destined for eternal destruction, even though he now futilely assaults the people of God. While we must be aware of his threat, we must never fear him if we are in Christ. Jesus has conquered sin. The promise that was made in Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled all the way in the New Testament. The promise made to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. The promise to Moses, to David, to Solomon, to you and me, if you are in Christ today, the God that we serve keeps his promises and that is why he is worthy of our worship. Number two, we also see that in this passage, the God that we serve is a God who provides redemption. Now, the Exodus event is the seminal event in the entire Old Testament. Now, we have to go back and think about how is it that the Israelites got to be in Egypt? And we know at the end of Genesis, Joseph is the second in command of all of Egypt. And eventually, he brings his family to come and live with him in Egypt. And he gives them everything they need. He gives them a place and he gives them food. But guess what happens to Joseph? Eventually, Joseph passes on. And the Pharaoh that Joseph served under passes on as well. And another Pharaoh comes to power. And he does not view Joseph's family. He does not view the Israelites the same way that the previous Pharaoh did. And so he enslaves them. And he puts them to work, building magnificent buildings for the Egyptians, doing all of their dirty work, if you will. And so at this point in the story, the Egyptians are in bondage. Excuse me, the Israelites are in bondage to Egyptian slavery. But here's the good news. Exodus chapter 2, I'm not going to go back and read it. But in that text, it tells us that God heard the groanings of the people and that he remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the Old Testament, the Israelites are in bondage here to slavery and God brings judgment on the Egyptians. How does he do that? Well, we know the story well. He kills the firstborn in all of Egypt and he passes over all of the Israelites who had the blood of the lamb swiped across the doorpost. And so Pharaoh, after experiencing the death of his own firstborn son, tells the Israelites to leave 
And they travel to the Red Sea. And there's this huge sea. And God separates the waters. And he allows the Israelites to walk through on dry land. And the Egyptians chase after them. Because they quickly regret making the decision to allow them to go. And as the Egyptians travel through the Red Sea, the waters come crashing down upon the Egyptians and the Israelites are finally free from the bondage of Egyptian slavery. God had redeemed his holy people. In the Exodus, we see a tangible expression of our lives as well. We are not in bondage to any nation But we are in bondage to sin. And we are in desperate need of a redeemer to come and to save us. And that is what Jesus does for you and me on the cross. He redeems us from the bondage of sin that we are enslaved to. Jesus then takes it one step further. Not only does he redeem us, but he takes on the judgment that you and me deserve. God poured out the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. He pours it out on his only son, Jesus. And Jesus not only redeems us, but he takes on the judgment of all of our sin in the crucifixion. He dies for you and for me. But three days later, we know that he conquers death. And what that means for us is that we do not have to remain in bondage to our sin. We can put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And in by doing that, we have been freed from the bondage of sin. And now we serve Jesus. We are in bondage to no one else but Jesus Christ. And that is not the type of bondage that we read about in the Exodus or in our sin. It is a brilliant way to be in bondage, to serve the Lord Jesus In 1841, Solomon Northup was a free African-American who was born in New York, and he took a job as a traveling musician, and he went to Washington, D.C., and at the end of working that shift, he was drugged, he was kidnapped, and he was sold into slavery in the Red River region of Louisiana, and for 12 years, Solomon Northup served as a slave, even though legally being born in New York, he was a free man. A Canadian man comes down to work on the plantation where Solomon was working. And in the process of this conversation, the Canadian man returns home and he gets word to New York to tell the authorities that there's this man named Solomon Northup who is serving as a slave in Louisiana and he is free. And so an attorney that knew Solomon well goes down to Louisiana and he rescues this slave who never was supposed to be a slave to begin with. You can read the story of this in the book that Solomon himself wrote, 12 Years a Slave, or you can take the easy way out and watch the movie that was released in 2013. But I would recommend that you read the book. But in the movie, there's this powerful scene where Solomon is working in the fields and the attorney comes down from New York and he hands the owner of the plantation a copy of this letter that basically tells him Solomon is a free man. And Solomon rises up from the fields and he runs over to this attorney that he knows and he wraps his legs around him and he begins crying because Solomon realizes he has been redeemed from slavery. There's a difference, though, 
between what Solomon experienced and what you and me experience. You see, Solomon Northup was legally free and didn't deserve to be a slave. You and me are guilty. And yet, if we're in Christ, we're free. We don't deserve to be redeemed. We have not earned the right to be redeemed, but God, in his love for us, sent Jesus to die the death that we deserve. And if we place our faith and trust in him, we will be redeemed. The God that we serve is a God who provides redemption for anybody who will seek it. Number three, we also see in this passage that the God that we serve is a God who pursues us. Not only are we redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, but once we're in Christ, God just doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own. He constantly pursues us. He cares for us. He loves us. He provides for us. This is the God that we serve, the one who constantly pursues his people. Go look at verse 7 with me in chapter 6 once again. Notice the use of the pronouns in this passage. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. These are possessive pronouns. God is jealous for his people. He doesn't just send Jesus to die on the cross and then tell us, good luck, figure it out on your own. He is a God who cares about his people, who pursues his people, who constantly wants to be in fellowship and in relationship with his people. God is revealed in Exodus 20 and Exodus 34 as a jealous God. This means that he has the exclusive right to the worship and service of his people. God cares about you. Yes, Jesus demonstrates that, but he also continues to pursue you. The entire story of the Bible is an account of God redeeming people to himself, but also constantly providing for them. When we worked our way through the Old Testament last year, time and time again, what did we learn? That the Israelites are really messed up people and that they mess up over and over again and that God, if he wanted to, could have had every right to dismiss these people and say, you guys don't get it, you're never gonna get it, I'm done with you. But he never does it. He constantly pursues them. He gives them chance after chance. Psalm 103, 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This describes the character of the God that we serve. He is slow to get angry with us. He is compassionate towards us. His love never fails. We see this in the Exodus story. We see this because as soon as the Israelites cross over the Red Sea, they immediately begin complaining. And they say, you know what? We might have been in slavery in Egypt, but at least we had good food. At least we had a nice place to stay. You've brought us across this Red Sea, and we have nothing. We don't have food. We don't have shelter. We're hot. We're sweaty. We're thirsty. We'd rather go back to Egypt. 
How would you feel if you had just done that for a people? If you had delivered them from slavery and then they immediately begin complaining? I can tell you what I would have done. I'd have thrown them back in slavery. You're not grateful? See you later. We'll walk you back that way. Have a nice life. But that is not what God does. He constantly pursues his people. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, one Sunday morning, he brought up all of the children in his church, ages 1 to 14, and he gave them a children's sermon. Now, Jonathan Edwards is one of the most important figures in the last 350 years of Christianity, and he's brilliant, and he could have given any sermon to these children that he wanted, but here's what he chose to say. Let me read it for you. There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. Edwards wanted the children of his little church up in Massachusetts to understand at the end of the day that nothing was more important than understanding the heart of Christ for sinners. That is the most important truth that any of us can walk away with today. That God has a heart for sinners that God pursues sinners, that he stays with us in spite of the fact that we never measure up, we never do enough, we always fall short. God still loves us and he still pursues us. Verse seven says that God is going to take the Israelites to be his chosen people, even though they always mess up, even though they never live up to the perfect standard that God had for them. Yes, do they experience consequences? Of course they do. When they're obedient, they receive blessings. When they're disobedient, they receive curses. The same is true for us. When we're obedient to God, we receive blessings. When we're disobedient, yes, we face consequences. But consequences does not mean that God is no longer pursuing you. Consequences does not mean that God does not love you. If you are a parent in the room or a grandparent or a child and you have ever faced consequences or given out consequences, 99% of the time, consequences are given precisely because you love those that live with you. You love your children. You love your grandchildren and you want them to do better. You're trying to set them up for success. And so consequences don't happen because you're giving up on them. Consequences happen because you do love them. And that is what God did with his people. That is what God does with his people today. We all face consequences when we disobey, but God does it in hopes that it will stir us and spur us on to be more like him. God never stops making the Israelites his chosen people. If you are in Christ today, God will never stop making you his chosen people. You are in Christ. You have been sealed with the Spirit. It can never go away. He pursues you. But the problem is, in our own human minds, we create these narratives, and we listen to those narratives that we create in our mind rather than listening to the Word of God. And here's what these narratives say. These narratives say, you don't need to go to church today. You've done too much bad stuff. Oh, you don't need to get connected to a community group where you can share your burdens with one another because those people, they don't have any idea what you've done. And if they did know, 
they would never want to be around you. These are the narratives that Satan feeds believers in Jesus Christ all of the time. He wants you to believe that God is no longer interested in pursuing you. He wants you to believe that your sin is so bad that you could never be forgiven of it and that no one would understand even if you did share that burden with them. This is how Satan works. But the reality is, that's not what the Bible teaches about who God is. So if you were here today and you think God is through with you, you are misinformed. Go to the text. Read the story of the Israelites and you will find out that if God remained faithful to the Israelites, I promise you, he can remain faithful to you. Maybe you think because of the sin in your life that no one could understand and that no one has done as bad as what you have done. Once again, go to the text. Look at the story of the disciples in the New Testament. Peter, one of the greatest disciples that Jesus had, point blank lies three times to people and says, I have no idea who Jesus is. In the moment when Jesus needed Peter the most, Peter bails on him. He wants nothing to do with Jesus as Jesus is going to the cross. And you think you've done worse than that? I can remember a story in my own life. I was a 14-year-old kid playing in a baseball tournament, staying at a hotel, eating breakfast, talking with my buddies about things that were inappropriate. And there was a man at the other table who heard us. He had small children and he lit into us. And he said, you guys aren't with a church group. You guys aren't Christians, are you? And I didn't say a word. How embarrassing. I didn't want him to know that I was a Christian because in my mind, well, in, in all of our minds, Christians shouldn't be talking that way. So what did I do in that moment? I denied that I was a Christian because I was embarrassed about the way that I was talking. So I had my very own Peter moment. See, I used to judge Peter and think, what a bad dude this is. And then I realized, uh-oh, I am Peter. I have denied Jesus. Maybe not in the same way Peter has, but I have denied him. I have stayed quiet when I should have spoken up. Brothers and sisters, the God that we worship is a God who pursues us. He never gives up on us. If you are in Christ today, you're sealed. Pursue him as he pursues you. So, Exodus chapter six, what do we learn about worship from this passage? Well, let me review. Number one, the God that we worship keeps his promises. Number two, the God that we worship provides redemption. And then number three, the God that we worship faithfully pursues us. Now, those three points have nothing to do with anything that happens in this room on Sunday morning. All of those points are revealed to us from the text of Scripture. So the scary thing is, if we're not careful, we can go into a worship service on a Sunday, we can hear the Word of God preached, biblically true, 
We can sing songs that are biblically accurate. We can pray prayers that are rooted in scripture. And we can leave thinking that I didn't have a good experience today. Even though the three things that I just mentioned are what constitutes biblical worship. Singing songs that faithfully proclaim the redemption of Jesus. Preaching sermons that show that the God who we worship pursues us. Praying prayers that emphasize that the God that we serve is the God who keeps his promises. The reason we can worship in this room, at home, at the dinner table with our families, when we're out at the ball fields with our children is because the three points that I shared with you this morning don't have anything to do with this building. Don't have anything to do with the hour from 10.30 to 11.30. You can meditate on the promises of God and his pursuit of you and his redemption for you any time of the day that you want to. And any time that you do that, you are worshiping. That is the God who we serve. The reality is that we can boil down worship into the 60 minutes in this room on Sunday forgetting that all of life is worship to God. Everything that we do, if we meditate on these points that I shared with you this morning, your only response to those points is worship, is understanding that God is faithful, that he has redeemed you, and that he keeps his promises. There could be someone here today that has never believed or trusted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for their sin. It could be that they've never experienced the redemption that we talked about today. And my prayer for anyone in this room or watching at home or watching on the internet who does not know Jesus, has never trusted completely in the finished work of Christ on the cross, that today they would make that decision, that they would turn from their sin and they would come to God, that they would realize that there is nothing so bad that Jesus' death would not conquer and satisfy. That is how much God's love is for you and me. And because of that love, we worship. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story in the Exodus where we see how faithful you have been to your holy people and how faithful you are to us. You are a faithful God. You love us. You care for us. You sent Jesus for us. And because of that, we can worship. Search our hearts, God. Forgive us for the times that we have left this room thinking, I didn't have a good experience today. God, if we have studied the word of God, if we have sang songs that focus on who God is, then we, we have worshiped. So we thank you for your love for us. And God, as we continue in this service, here in just a moment, we're gonna stand and we are going to continue to worship, sing praises to you for who you are. You are an awesome God. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.